0: Tonight, for our 185th episode, we discuss the noir thriller, Touch of Evil, from 1958, celebrating its 65th anniversary. Directed and written by Orson Welles, music by Henry Mancini, starring Charlton Heston as Ramon Miguel Mike Vargas, Janet Leigh as Susan Vargas, Orson Welles as Police Captain Hank Quinlan, Joseph Kalea as Sergeant Pete Menzies, Akim Tamaroff as Uncle Joe Grandy, Joanna Cook-Moore as Marsha Lineker, Ray Collins as District Attorney Adair, Dennis Weaver as the night manager, Val DeVargas as Poncho, Zsa, Zsa Gabor as the strip club owner, Marlena Dietrich as Tana. Recognition for this movie? While Touch of Evil was officially released on April 23, 1958, on January 31, 1958, Touch of Evil was given a sneak preview at the theater in the Pacific Palisades in Los Angeles. This version of the film ran 108 minutes, and it was not well received. Charlton Heston wrote in his journal that, quote, I'm afraid it's simply not a good picture. It has the brilliance that made each day's rushes look so exciting, of course. Indeed, there's hardly a dull shot in the film, but it doesn't hold together as a story. Unfortunately, the critics of the time agreed. In February 1958, Touch of Evil was attached in a double bill with the female animal starring Hedley Lamar. Excuse me, Hedy Lamar. <laughs> which also produced by Albert Zugsmith and directed by Harry Keller. The two films even had the same cameraman, Russell Medi. This general version only ran 94 minutes. The different runtimes were due to the multiple editing processes over the course of the post-production, with Wells and his normal partner, Virgil Vogel, starting originally and then it being assigned to a studio editor later on. On December 5th, 1957, having been screened a new cut, Wells presented a 58-page memorandum addressed to the studio head, detailing what he thought needed to be done to make the film work. However, these were not followed. During the early 1970s, Robert Epstein, a UCLA film studies professor, had requested a film print for a screening in his class. Inside the Universal Archives, he discovered a 108 minute print of Touch of Evil. On December 15, 1973, it was publicly screened at the Los Angeles County Museum of Art as part of the 50 Great American Films. In June 1975, the American Film Institute, recognizing the historical value of the discovery, had submitted a duplicated negative to the Library of Congress for preservation. A 16 millimeter re release provided through United World Films. Universal Pictures' non-theatrical distribution arm was also discussed. Subsequently, it was screened at the Paris Film Festival, which was followed with a wide theatrical re-release by Universal Pictures that recognized an increased interest among film fans in Wells' works. In 1975, Jonathan Rosenbaum published an article in the film magazine Sight & Sound claiming that, except for a few minor details, the version was apparently identical to Wells' final cut and described it as the definitive version. Joseph McBride, in a letter to Sight & Sound, issued a correction identifying the cut as the preview version. In 1998, Walter Murch, working from all available material, re-edited the film based on Wells' memo, with Rick Schmidlin, who produced the re-edit with the help of Bob O'Neill, Universal's Director of Film Restoration, and Bill Varney, Universal's Vice President of Sound Operations, participating in the restoration. As Wells' rough cut no longer exists, no true director's cut is possible, but Murch was able to assemble a version incorporating most of the existing material, omitting some of the Keller scenes, though some were retained either because they had replaced Wells' lost scenes and were necessary to the plot, or because Wells had approved of their inclusion. Some of Wells' complaints concerned subtle sound and editing choices, and Merch re-edited the material accordingly. Notable changes include the removal of the credits and Henry Mancini's music from the opening scenes, cross-cutting between the main story and Janet Leigh's subplot, and the removal of Harry Keller's hotel lobby scene. Rick Schmidlin produced the 1998 edit, which had a limited but successful theatrical release, again by Universal, and was subsequently made available on DVD. The DVD includes an on-screen reproduction of the 58-page memo. Further critic reevaluation started as well around that time, as Roger Ebert added Touch of Evil to his Great Movies list, and Time Out conducted a poll, and the film was voted 57th greatest film of all time. In 2000, the film was ranked at number 55 in the Village Voice's 100 Greatest Films list, and Touch of Evil was placed number 64 on American Film Institute's 100 Years, 100 Thrills list in 2001. In the Sight and Sound Greatest Films of All Time 2012 poll. The film was placed at number 26 and number 57 by the directors and the critics, respectively. In 2015, the film ranked 51st on BBC's 100 Greatest American Films list, voted on by film critics from around the world. Touch of Evil currently holds a 95% among critics on Rotten Tomatoes, an unheard of 99 score on Metacritic, and a 4.2 out of 5 on Letterboxd. So, as we start each week, what is your relationship to this film?
1: For me, um, it was a uh, conversation that I saw or an interview with Charlton Heston later on in life who really felt this was one of the better films, one of the better roles he was in. Um, He kept talking about what a mess it was between Wells and the studio and such. So it was always a film that was intriguing to me. It also had become kind of a cult following. And having seen some of or read some of the uh, interviews between Bogdanovich and Wells, this film was highlighted as being one of those that he regretted that uh, he allowed the studio to have editorial control. So, but I had never seen the film. I'd seen excerpts of the film. I'd seen parts of the film that were presented, but I'd never seen the entire film. Actually, it was the first time watching it through. I watched the first half then uh, because I had not finished it. I watched it again last night and I started from the beginning with your mother and grandmother. And so I've seen it one and a half
0: times, I guess. So much like you, I came to this partially due to the performance of everybody that was in it from other things. So Janet Lee, obviously, for Psycho, and which was a couple of years later. And I'd seen other Wells movies. I haven't seen some of his bigger movies outside of, like, Citizen Kane. I've seen The Third Man, which he's only an actor, and that's Carol Reed directed. But I also recently saw The Trial, which is from 1962, with Anthony Perkins, which, I mean, it's a Kafka adaptation, so it was a little strange to begin with. Yes it was much more of a discussion piece film than I felt was necessarily a movie to be enjoyed, but that tends to be (laughs) some of the films that are described or picked by my uh, discussion group are ones that to me feel like abstract art. Yes. Either way, obviously knowing Charlton Heston from other things like Ben Hur, which came the year after this, or another movie we've discussed on the show the greatest show on earth. Either way, I come at it from the standpoint of all of these people being together in a movie that was intriguing because the collection of people and the collection of talent is kind of outstanding for this kind of movie, and it's a lot of people I would have never thought would have worked together. Like, you give me Charlton Heston and Orson Welles by itself, already I find that to be kind of an odd pairing from what I would normally think. Particularly by this point in Welles' career.
1: Except Heston specifically asked for Welles to direct.
0: I'm aware. And I also know I have an anecdote of Janet Leigh later as to how she got into this film as well. But, yeah, I mean, it's just an assortment of people that... There are big names connected to this, and I think some of it had to do with the fame and celebrity of Wells at the time. But this is, I think, his second or third to last, like, major studio film. He kind of dropped off after this.
1: Well, he kind of did by himself for what he wanted to because he just got frustrated. I mean, when you stop and think about it, I was discussing this with your mom this morning, which is how big a, or a entertainer, how big a celebrity Orson Welles was. In the mid-1930s, Orson Welles had like five of the top 10 radio shows out that he was the star that he directed, wrote, and starred in. In fact, they were on different networks because we had ABC, or excuse me, you had uh, NBC Blue and NBC Red plus CBS and Mutual. And so Orson Welles had special permission from the city of New York to ride in an ambulance because he would have to go from one studio to another to perform live. At the same time, he's on Broadway doing productions where he's directing and starring and producing Broadway shows. And so he would ride around New York city in an ambulance with the siren going off. So he could make it in time to go from place to place. That's how big he was. And then when he went to Hollywood and did citizen Kane, he was as big a star as they, as there really is. I don't, I, I cannot tell you from reading about him, any star in today's world that would be, as popular or as well known as Orson Welles was at that time. And that
0: continued. Oh, I disagree. It would be the the level to which Taylor Swift is right now.
1: She's Uh, making
0: the NFL.
1: Okay, maybe, but I'm not sure. But Orson Welles was the kind of celebrity or the kind of person that everybody wanted to work with. But then when they did, sometimes they regretted the fact that they did because he was so temperamental.
0: And I do believe that it had to leave a lasting mark for him that he got carte blanche on his first film and probably never got it again. Not fully, not to that level.
1: I I think he was like 26 at the time that he got, that he did Citizen Kane.
0: That sounds right.
1: Yeah. I mean, I don't know if they had the Tony awards back then, but he was like a major hit in a Broadway production at like 19 playing the part of a man who's in his forties. So he was huge. I mean, um, he was as big a star as the, there was in, on radio and uh, on theater at the time that he started
0: in Hollywood. No, I get that. But circling back to this, it's one of the films that among his, like there's probably two films that I would cite that are commonly referred to as like the Holy Trinity of Orson Welles. It's, Citizen Kane, probably at number one for most people. It's this and then The Magnificent Ambersons.
1: And then The Third Man just as an actor, but not necessarily as a director.
0: I look at that as a much different film. While it does distinct camera work, it's not to the same level of, I would say, almost unicorn-like camera work as Citizen Kane did at the time it was made, and that this is kind of doing at the time it was made. Yes. So then what is this movie about? Because I'll be honest, I still don't know what this is supposed to be about. Is it racism? Is it police corruption? Is it good policing versus bad policing? It's kind of a bit of a Rorschach, if you ask me.
1: Yes, but I mean, I don't know offhand what Wells' IQ level was, but my understanding is, is it was per- pretty much off the charts. My guess is is he just loved doing projects or productions that allowed each person to see something completely different, and he played into it.
0: I should mention, Wisconsin's own Orson Welles.
1: Yes, Kenosha.
0: Yes. So, is Orson Welles actually a good actor?
1: Well, we'll get into that when we talk about our best performances, because I think Orson Welles was an absolutely phenomenal
0: actor. I'm a little bit more mixed. I very much enjoy The Third Man, but it's mostly because of Joseph Cotton. It's not because of Orson Welles. And while I have started to come around on Citizen Kane, it's not because of him that I necessarily would like the movie as much as a lot of the supporting acts in that film. So, again, this is one where... I think this is actually the best acting performance that I think I've seen him give in any of the films that I've watched of his. This is actually something where it felt layered and that he was doing a little bit more. But it's always kind of like an iffy thing for me. I Again, I don't know how to judge acting. I will say that full stop. I've always had a difficulty with trying to figure out what exactly am I supposed to be judging here. But, you know, okay. Well,
1: you add to that the Paul Mason commercials he did in the 70s. Wow.
0: You you <laughs> totally lost me on that one. <laughs> Way over uh, my head.
1: Any Anybody over uh, about 50 is going to chuckle because they'll remember those Paul Masson commercials where you go, we serve no wine before it's time.
0: Okay. So do you want to get further into the weeds on this film? Do you have a plot summary ready for us?
1: I do. In Touch of Evil, director Orson Welles crafts a gripping, noir-infused masterpiece that immerses the audience in a world of corruption, betrayal, and and moral ambiguity. Set in a seedy border town on the U.S.-Mexican border, a car bomb explodes on the American side of the border, setting off a chain of events that exposes the underbelly of law enforcement and political power. At the center of the narrative is the enigmatic and morally compromised police captain Hank Quinlan, played with remarkable depth by Orson Welles himself. Quinlan is a brilliant detective known for his unorthodox methods but his obsession with bringing criminals to justice has led him down a dark path of manipulation and deceit. He's a character who personifies the blurred lines between good and evil, justice and corruption. Opposing Quinlan is the charismatic and determined Mexican narcotics officer Mike Vargas, portrayed by the charismatic Charlton Heston. Vargas is determined to solve the bombing case and is willing to confront the pervasive corruption that infects both sides of the border. As the investigation unfolds, Touch of Evil delves into the themes of racial tension, prejudice, and the abuse of power, all set against a backdrop of gritty urban decay. The film's supporting cast includes Janet Lee as Vargas' wife Susan and Marlena Dietrich as the mysterious fortune-teller Gypsy. Adds depth to the story and further complicates the moral landscape. Touch of Evil is a cinematic tour de force that continues to be celebrated for its complexity, social commentary, and innovative film techniques. It's a film that leaves a lasting impression by challenging viewers to question their own notions of justice and morality in a world where darkness lurks just beneath the surface. Orson Welles' Touch of Evil is a timeless classic that remains a must-see for cinephiles and lovers of thought-provoking cinema.
0: Thank you. Did you know? Janet Leigh's agent initially rejected her participation in this film due to the low salary offered with even consulting the actress. Orson Welles, anticipating this, sent a personal letter to the actress telling her how much he looked forward to their working together. Leigh, furious, confronted her agent, telling him that getting directed by Wells was more important than any paycheck. Did you know? The opening scene took an entire night to get right, mainly because the actor playing the customs officer kept blowing his lines. It was beginning to get light on the horizon when Orson Welles made the final take of the night, saying to the cast, All right, let's try it one more time. Then he looked at the actor and said, If you forget your line this time, just move your lips, and we'll dub it in later. But please, God, do not say, I'm sorry, Mr. Wells. This is the take seen in the film. However, it is important to add that Wells categorically refused to consider firing this unhappy actor at any point, although Universal executives who were on the set repeatedly urged him to. Did you know? Despite popular speculation, Orson Welles is wearing makeup throughout the film. For hours every night, they'd add pounds and pounds onto him, and he used prosthetics for his face. He once said that he was late going to a dinner party at his house during the filming and arrived with his makeup still on. A famous actress approached him when he entered and in all seriousness said, Orson, you look wonderful. (laughs) Uh, Okay. Did you know? This film was screened at the 1958 Brussels World's Fair, where judges and then critics Jean-Luc Godard and Francois Truffaut awarded it the top prize. It was said the film was a great influence on starting Godard's and Truffaut's illustrious careers, both of whom within a year went on to make their first films, Breathless from 1960 and The 400 Blows from 1959, respectively. Did you know? The entire film was shot on real locations, apart from the 10-minute take in the Mexican shoe store clerk's apartment, which is actually on a set. The studio wanted the entire film to be shot on sets even going so far as to build numerous locations on its lots. But Orson Welles insisted on filming in a real city, settling for Venice, California, when he couldn't get his initial choice of Tijuana. Yeah. I think it would have been a much more challenging shoot had it been in Tijuana. Uh,
1: yes. Having been in Tijuana.
0: I don't think Mom would have watched this film had she known it was filmed actually in Tijuana.
1: No. That's the one, the one... The one time... I've actually watched her completely freak out about travel.
0: Okay, I was going to say, the one time you actually watched her freak out, what, this week?
1: (laughs) Uh, No comment.
0: All right, with that, we'll take our first break, and we will be right back. Before we jump back into the episode, next week for our 186th episode, it's our Halloween episode for the year, and we're returning to our favorite Alfred Hitchcock for a discussion on The Birds from 1963, directed by Alfred Hitchcock, written by Evan Hunter, cinematography by Robert Burks, starring Rod Taylor, Tippi Hedren, and Jessica Tandy. You won't want to miss that one, so watch ahead of the show by searching the Real Good app to find where it's streaming for you. That's R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D. You think you can get mom to watch that with you? No.
1: She hates that film because it scares the crap out of her every time she watches it.
0: I've openly said that it is the most claustrophobic movie I think I've ever seen.
1: Uh, Everything I've read about Hitch is that he does some of these films with a specific purpose of making people uncomfortable because he thinks it's funny. And I think he have created a film that really does that for a lot of people, including Tippi Hedren.
0: Yes. Well, the reason I state that it's one of the most claustrophobic films that I think I've ever seen is because it's like the film version of if you were being attacked by a swarm of anything, And you start like flailing around and like pushing your arms in all directions, trying to get things away from you, even when it's like a couple of bees. That's the entire movie on screen. I could only imagine if somebody recreated the birds but put it in 3D, how that would go. Like that would be something James Cameron would do and would absolutely terrify everyone.
1: Although I can think of a response to that that would not be as bad, which is in the meaning of life where the guy is sentenced to death and he gets to choose his form of execution and it's to be chased off a cliff by a bunch of naked women.
0: That's not so much a swarm where it would be going around your head
1: (laughs) as it is like a flock or a pack. That would be an interesting swarm, though, to uh,
0: have. I mean, if you could pick your own death, which way would you go? Oh, why are you doing this to me? (laughs)
1: I have an answer, but I can't say it. (laughs) I really can't. Because it would be so inappropriate to you and to our audience who knows one of the uh, regular guests wouldn't be necessarily involved.
0: (laughs) I think you've pretty much outed yourself right there.
1: (laughs) Uh, Yes. Uh, as
0: far as it goes, I mean, yes, that would be a, a great uh, ending, so so to say. But I think for the most part, I'd, I'd love to just go to sleep one night and never wake up.
1: Well, let's just, put it, let's just put it this way. When I was about seven or eight, I had been a fan of the uh, TV show Sanford and Son. And I happened to find a comedy album of Red Fox, who was the star. So, of course, I bought it because, you know, hey, let's just say that Red Fox's comedy album is nothing like Fred Sanford. And uh, the the term come and go at the same time was in the film or was in the comedy album.
0: Okay, moving on. (laughs) You can take that out. (laughs) I don't really know how to transition it if I don't leave it in. Uh, Yes. Best performances up. Who did you have down?
1: I have Orson Welles. (laughs) I thought he made the film. His character was so sleazy and so just despicable. At the same time, you knew that he was accomplishing something. And so you kind of had this admiration, but it was done like you were holding your nose at the same time. And Having watched this film, it was prescient. I mean, this film basically outlined what I think took place in the OJ trial.
0: Yeah, that was exactly my thoughts is, okay, first off, I agreed with you. I thought it was Wells, not necessarily because of any one moment of excellence in this one, although I think it's his best acting performance, as I mentioned before, but just in the totality of everything he contributed towards the film in its initial editing In the cinematography direction, I think that he assisted with the writing, the actual direction, and being, I guess, its second main star. I mean, would you put him top top billing over Heston or no?
1: It was at this point in time difficult because Heston was so well known and so well regarded in Hollywood.
0: I'm just talking who actually has the the most lines or the, I guess, who would be the protagonist. I think I guess he's the protagonist, but he's the protagonist. Heston would have been the star,
1: but I don't, I didn't think Heston's performance was that memorable.
0: Well, we'll get to that in a second. Cause I, I have some comments on that, but that being said, getting to, <laughs> to the, the prescience of, uh, I immediately thought of Mark Furman. Yes. I, I thought immediately of Mark Furman upon kind of the, the scene that f- for me flips the movie which is when they actually frame him with the dynamite in the shoebox. And for me, this kind of, I wouldn't say like opened eyes or did anything else. Yes, it's a little bit ahead of its time as far as what our understanding of police corruption, police malpractice has been. I think we're in a much different place as a society to evaluate this type of movie than they probably were at the time. Like, 1958 was probably not a glory day to be questioning the police and police tactics. But it leads to one of the few remaining questions I had about the film. It's a throwaway line that the guy that they do arrest and that they framed actually did the act. Well, So that's, okay, so we're just basically supposed to accept, yeah, his tactics were bad, but okay, he still got his guy right. But what about all the other cases where he framed people?
1: Well, at least his comment was, I never framed a guy that wasn't guilty.
0: How do we know that? Well... There was maybe circumstantial evidence at best for getting the framing on this guy. It just happened to work out. I think, to me, that's the biggest open-ended question of the film.
1: I mean, you're coming at this, having listened to me talk about the OJ trial for the last, what, 25
0: years? Most of my understanding of the OJ trial is not from you, but it's on the O.J. Made in America documentary.
1: Uh, I had said all along, I had these discuss- these conversations with oh, our minister's wife, Sharon. You know, I kept saying over and over, I have no question that he did it. <laughs> the problem is, is that the LAPD for years has been manufacturing convictions by planting evidence. And no defendant ever had the, resources necessary to prove it well now oj does and so of course he hires a team of lawyers who can substantiate that this evidence was planted and as a result he is con- uh, he is found innocent uh, or is not convicted or whatever not guilty however you want to phrase it
0: as a defense attorney you might want to know the term acquitted
1: yes anyway the point <laughs> the point being is that it, <laughs> It is what it is. I mean, this is the system. It's a poor system. It's terrible how it's run. Everything about it's flawed. But yet it is the best system that we've ever come up with in any place pretty much in the world to determine guilt or innocence. Because it's implemented in almost every country that has a democracy
0: in place. All right. But everything looks so easy on NCIS and CSI and all of these other places. I mean, (laughs) couldn't he have just, like, found the semen on the back of the trunk of the blown-up car and used that to somehow frame the guy, I mean, or, like, find his target? Because isn't there semen on everything? You have to
1: understand. What was, I mean, I think it was still one of the most, it had not been at that point in time, was still... Close to being one of, been within the year or so, Dragnet was a hugely popular television show at that time, and Dragnet glorified police tactics, and it was the LAPD, which is notoriously known as being rather corrupt and not necessarily. Above board on most things, which is right, why the movie right, LA right. confidential is. Yeah. I was going to say you is. were
0: going to go exactly into LA confidential and that's not the movie we are discussing. So I know you're jumping the gun a little bit on me. Uh, yes. Got to wait a couple of years on that one. Oh uh, yeah, I know. Best secondary performance. I had Russell Medi, the cinematographer. I think the thing that stands out the most to me about the entirety of the film, whether it's the, is it three minutes, four minutes opening shot of the film that's all in like one take, but it's going in and out, and they had to have some type of rigging that was just amazing to pull that off. I still don't know how they pulled off that opening tracking shot. But the other shots in the film, I still think are outstanding. And as much as we like to highlight the camera work from Citizen Kane, I actually think this might be a better filmed film.
1: Well, interestingly enough, I found a piece where it said, that Toland, who was the cinematographer in Citizen Kane, was a consultant to Orson Welles in this film and actually contributed some of the work, working with the cinematographer on some of the scenes and the camera angles and all of that. So, yeah. So I, I understand where you're coming from, but I think there's been more, there's more involved in this cinematography than just the one individual. But he still, regardless, it's his name on it, did a really good job. right? I had, for my best secondary performance, Joseph Kalia. It was, know everything I read, he is a long time, had been a long time stage actor, had done a few films. This is considered by most to be his finest work as a film actor. I thought he did more with his part, which could very well have been rather flat and one-dimensional, but he made it more layered because of the fact that he's constantly sticking up for him and then does the flip where he realizes that he's been played, that he is not, that the person he had thought was going to, was the real hero in his story was not, and he no longer wanted to be part of it. So I thought his performance was phenomenal, especially considering how the part was written.
0: He's one where I'm a little bit undecided on kind of how to take his character because I think obviously he's important to the plot, but most of his character as a, how his character is doled out is either early on in kind of the various exposition in the film where it doesn't feel like there's a lot going on other than very basic exposition But he somehow becomes an important character by the end of the movie, and I'm not sure how we ever got there. He is the classic white and black character. He's completely in
1: with Orson Welles early in the film. Then he figures out that he's been played, and then he completely goes the other direction. He did both convincingly, so that's why I specifically picked him because there was no question that he believed each of those positions when he was playing them. The script kind of muddled exactly his transformation, unless you consider the transformation, the uncovering of the cane when he's talking to Vargas or to Charles Weston at one scene. I think
0: that's supposed to be the leading indicator
1: I understand, but it really wasn't, it really did not trigger an emotional response the way it was done. I think it was a little flat and left you kind of questioning where things were going. Could have been done a little crisper, but uh, again, I thought his, his ability to convince his feelings, his loyalty in one part of the film versus the other part of the film, we convincing in both. So that's why I went with, with secondary.
0: As far as most charismatic, this is where I went Charlton Heston. I think it's actually the most charismatic thing I've ever seen him in. I could give or take him in obviously greatest show on earth. That's another story entirely, but I don't think he's that convincing in Ben-Hur. Now I haven't seen the planet of the apes films, which are probably some of his most known works or, for that matter, the Ten Commandments. But to me, this is the part where I thought he was the most convincing, the most likable, and maybe the least, I guess, flat version of whatever he was. So for me, this was kind of an easy choice because I didn't find too many other people that likable in the film, but I, I was seemingly drawn to his character early and often throughout the course of the film, regardless of when he was on, to say that you find
1: Charles Heston the most likable in this film and you haven't seen him in The Ten Commandments and what other film did you say?
0: The Planet of the Apes movies.
1: Planet of the Apes is kind of like saying that I think that vanilla is the best flavor in Baskin-Robbins 31 flavors because I haven't tried 28 of them.
0: Okay, I've seen at least his most
1: notable work. Well, I'm telling you the two films that I think he did the best job in are probably The Ten Commandments and Planet of the Apes.
0: So your criticism is based on the fact that me saying up to this point, this is the most charismatic I've found him in a film?
1: I'm not necessarily criticizing you. I'm just saying that your ability to say that he's the most charismatic based on this film is limited simply because I think the two best performances he provided... You did not have not seen.
0: Okay. Noted. Well, we'll get back to that or we'll circle back to it on our Ten Commandments pod in like 2030.
1: <laughs> uh, yes. I'll have to uh, work on eating more bran so that I can be there for it. Fair enough. Who'd you have? I have Janet Lee. Every time, I, I mean, I start out the only time I'd ever seen Janet Lee doing a film originally. Was a psycho. And then I started watching a few other films that she's in. And the more I watch Janet Lee, the more I'm just fascinated about her ability to just completely take over a scene and be both challenging and convincing as a strong personality and yet be vulnerable at the same time. I think Janet Lee was way underrated as an actress throughout most of her career and I am just phenomenally how to put it I guess I have a crush on her as a result of this because I think she's just phenomenal in this film and every time I've seen her on something different I am amazed at how much range and how much she is able to put into the film.
0: It does actually make me like her more in Psycho because we don't get that much time with her. But I think that we do over the course of this film. My biggest issue with her is not her. It's her character and its use. Like, why is she in the film for 80% of the film? She's there as kind of like a device to move the plot along to an extent. She's like a MacGuffin.
1: Well, and the other thing was, as I noticed, putting her in the uh, little uh, bustier while she's in the hotel room was certainly a, um, well, let's, we have Janet Leigh and she's quite attractive. So let's see if we can figure out a way to make men kind of go, ooh. Uh.
0: Well, I mean, it's no different than what Hitchcock did two years later. I mean, he put her in equally risque positions during Psycho, but
1: regardless I'm watching, of that. i watching, let me just put this comment in. I'm watching this film and I'm watching Dennis Weaver's portrayal of the night watchman or the night manager. And I'm watching her and I'm going, Hitchcock's watching this film and going, Hmm, I wonder if I can use this overall theme kind of to portray
0: how we're going to do psycho. That's exactly where I was going with this, because at a certain point, did you look at the screen and say, Janet Lee, stop visiting motels. (laughs) Yes. All right, let's move to best scene then. So I have the opening tracking shot kind of up until the bomb actually explodes as being probably the only thing that I would find redeemable about the first maybe 45 minutes of the film. The rest of it is kind of like you're lost. You don't understand why any of this fits together and doesn't necessarily make sense. I actually think that this is a better short film from about the point of my second nominee, which is them finding the dynamite in the shoebox and the frame job that, that's going to happen. That's when I think this film actually starts to take off. Then I also have Vargas exposes Quinlan. I have Susan kidnapped. I have Quinlan murdering Grandy. And then the final showdown. Now, for me, I have it down to two scenes as the best. I have it either at the dynamite found, because I think that that has multiple different parts to it or I have the final showdown where he's following them with the recorder and has the bug and you're like, why doesn't he have a white panel van?
1: (laughs) Yes. Okay. That was played to me. Do You want to explain to the audience or not? No, no,
0: no. I was making more of a comment about the FBI just (laughs) always being in white panel vans, following people with microphones or bugs trying to record people. Yeah. As opposed to your where you're going with this is the conspiracy theory show. Yes, with... Uh, uh, Jesse Ventura. Jesse
1: Ventura, yes. Which I thought was the most hilarious show on television. I used to sit and watch it and just laugh. I thought it was great.
0: Yes, you watched it like why people go to the zoo.
1: <laughs> yeah. My best scene, I watched it twice. And the opening scene the tracking shot, I mean, I was just enthralled. I'm going, I can't believe that this scene was done and was done this well and how it was set up and how it was done or performed because I'm just going, this is so, so good. I mean, this by itself just shows the genius of Wells. If, if this was his conception of how to set this up and how it was going to be performed and set about and everything, it just was phenomenal. It's by far, to me, the best scene in the film. It's not indelible necessarily, but it's the most memorable to me. Because, you know, anybody wants to talk about cinematography and how to set up and how to do tracking and all this, this scene is going to come back as being one that I have to point to as being incredibly well done
0: and memorable. I remember freshman year of high school, I had a band teacher that lived by a certain mantra. People don't care how you do in the middle. You could screw up badly and it won't matter because they only remember how you begin and how you end. And so we always focused really well on opening it up and closing and stopping all on the same time and getting the right rhythms together so that we're all kind of working together in some unison. And for me, I very much felt that that's probably the reason that I like Christopher Nolan as much as I do. He knows how to finish a movie. He knows how to open a movie. There are always two big set pieces. You fall on like some really great line to end a film, (laughs) and he always opens with some big, grandiose set piece that like really delves you into the movie. So while the cold open is great and I love it and you can't put this movie on and within three minutes think, holy shit, how good is the rest of this film going to be? Except then you're disappointed by the next like 42 minutes. (laughs) Yeah. Especially the like the weird side plot with Janet Lee off in the corner, like going down and meeting Grandy and then none of that matters. Like that could have almost all been cut and it wouldn't have made any difference. I know it's just weird. It's inclusion and the fact that that scene is supposed to take you into the bombing, which is supposed to supposedly drive the plot. But the resolution of that murder actually is a side note at the end of the entire thing. And that's why I say you could probably skip to about the point where they find the dynamite in the box and it's not going to matter about this film. That's the part that gets me and either that's script writing or that's editing. It is and it isn't, because it's reality.
1: Which is that there are a lot of situations, especially in these when you're doing criminal investigations or criminal trials where stuff comes about where you just have a difficult time following along because it doesn't necessarily flow. Pieces of evidence comes about or realizes or whatever. I've done, I believe... I've been involved in four homicides where I was involved as, as a, an attorney. Yeah, I was going to recommend- say, I was going
0: to start questioning how you were involved, but okay.
1: Well, I'm making, uh, I'm giving advice and, and helping because I have responsibilities for clients. Yeah, I'll, I'll uh, go back. Things don't necessarily move linearly in criminal law and how things are done and trials are handled something will happen that leads you to provide information about something else etc etc and so i didn't have as big a problem as some people would have had or you had in regards to the car bombing and grandi and all of that because i understand how things interplay I didn't, I guess I didn't have as big a problem with it.
0: My problem isn't that they're not treating this as like the founding part of what brings them all together. It just becomes kind of secondary to what the actual action of the film becomes by the second half of it. And that's why my favorite scene was the dynamite found, because I think it actually kicks off the most interesting part of the film, which is the second half. Sure.
1: No, I, 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 I've got it. I understand exactly where you're going with it. My favorite scene in this is the murder itself. Because I thought, I, I mean, I'm... Wait, hold on. Which one? you got to be more specific than that. Excuse me, Grande's murder. Okay. Hank murders Grande. And is attempting to frame Vargas, or at least implicate Mrs. Vargas. However, it was unclear exactly what his intent was or how he was going to handle it. But at the very least, to me, that's probably the most or my favorite scene because it's clearly where the film turns and it becomes clear where Hank has crossed the line
0: Well, See, for me, I, I already felt he was way over the line when it came to the dynamite found. Okay. But this is only him extending that because it's kind of a panic move for him to go quite that far. I mean, it's one thing to plant evidence. It's another thing to actually commit a murder and to try and get yourself out of kind of an extorted situation. But that's why I also think that that particular scene is my most indelible, because I think it's the most auteuristic of the entire film. As much as we talked about the camera work from the opening scene, I actually think that the best camera work is in that particular sequence, because with Grandy trying to look under the bed for the gun or Janet Lee coming out onto the fire escape, and trying to call down or just so many good crisp shots and such in shadow. I thought it was one of the more well done camera work parts of the movie to kind of really show the final descent, if you will, for Quinlan.
1: Yeah, no, I, I, I understand my most indelible though, was the bridge and the tape recording scene, because to me, this is, Him, you know, you're trying to get him to confess and the extent that it takes you in order to show that, I mean, this guy has had multiple years of doing this and the extent that it takes you to prove it. I I think that was the, the point that I was most considering, which was just the fact that it took that much effort in order to get to that point where you had it on tape and you could show that he was planting evidence and that all of this really was manufactured.
0: All right, that's a good spot for our second break, and we'll be right back. Before we jump back into the episode, and before we get to the Stanley Rubric in a minute, if you're ever curious about our master greatest movies of all time list, that is every graded movie we've ever discussed on the show, there's a link in the episode description of every episode of this show, Or you can go to RonnieDuncanStudios.com backslash podcast and find it as the top entry on the Greatest Movie of All Time podcast show page. That has the grades we've done so far for all 169 movies we've graded, and we continue to add more each week. Make sure to check that out as we go and follow along. Dad, do we have anyone to remember this week?
1: We do. Patricia Cray, 82, American actress, was in Wonder Boys, Love and Other Drugs, and the Kill Point and Dick Butkus, 80, American Hall of Fame football player with the Chicago Bears and was an actor, was in Hang Time and Johnny Dangerously.
0: I don't have a ton to say. I'm just going to say I'm going to miss Dick Butkus on X. Being a Packer fan, he was still one of the best things on X, forwardly known as Twitter for being a Chicago bear and you could make me entertained as a Packer fan, you must've been pretty good at Twitter. So yeah, uh, that's all I have to say on, on him for that right now. But uh, we remember them here for their contributions with a moment of silence in their honor. Thank you. Best lines. I have Ramon Miguel, Mike Vargas. A policeman's job is only easy in a police state. Vargas. Who's the boss? The cop or the law? Menzies. Convictions? Sure. How many did you frame? Quinlan. Nobody. Come on, Hank. How many did you frame? I told you. Nobody. Nobody that wasn't guilty. 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 That's all I had. Oh, I have two more yet. Menzies. All these years you've been playing me for a sucker. Faking evidence. Quinlan. Aiding justice, partner. And then finally, Quinlan. My game leg is starting to talk to me. Yeah. All right, let's go to the Stanley rubric then. Legacy is up first. Do you want to go first or second? Go ahead. So as we mentioned before, this is probably Wells' second or third most famous film with the magnificent Ambersons, but how many in the regular public would even know the title, let alone the story? I think there's reverence in the cinema historian and critics crowd for this, but not much elsewhere. So on that backing alone, I'll go a little bit higher on the industry and I'll go a four, but I'm going to go a one on the audience to give it a five overall.
1: So I have pretty much the same score, except I went with a 4.5 for the industry, simply because it's in the registry and, and critics really love it and it's really ranked high and, and Wells' position as a director has become pretty significant. But the public is a 1. And in fact, I almost went below a 1. I almost went 0.5 because this is a film where no one has heard of it unless there's somebody who watches a lot of film.
0: No, I'm definitely with you there. I thought about going lower than a 1, but...
1: Yeah. Yeah, I'm a
0: 5.5. I think the only way I'm going to go lower than a 1 on a Legacy... Is either the film is so completely unknown or it has a negative like legacy score. Maybe that's where the delineation needs to come down.
1: So I think you're at five and I'm at 5.5. Wow, you listened. Yes, I do. And I did. Need help with the math? I think I'm good.
0: Okay. So that's a 5.25 average between the two of us. Impact and significance is going to be a little bit more challenging given the struggles this film had kind of coming out of the gate it has relatively little to no awards attention outside of some international film festivals and i'm gonna venture out that this might be the film that killed wells's major pull as a director like i know he had fame and notoriety and celebrity but this is getting on the tail end of the wells fad if you will I mean, he really only does one to two, depending on whom you ask, major films after this. The Trial being one of them, which is a very strange and kind of French film, if I remember correctly. So I wouldn't even call that necessarily a studio film. But this is also right before Charlton Heston kind of really blew up. But he had kind of already been a major star. Obviously, we talked about two movies that he'd appeared in before this. So he was kind of the billable guy it didn't really do anything for Janet Lee or anybody else that was necessarily in the film. So I think I'm kind of forced into maybe like a 1.5 for the industry and really maybe only a 0.5 for the audience. I mean this this barely drew any money. It was kind of out of theaters very quickly. It kind of was relegated to back of the catalog status pretty quickly and so at two, but I, I think I could be convinced otherwise. Okay. I looked at
1: all of the industry or the, uh, critics assessments. Okay. And it was pretty 50, 50 as far as I could tell. Um, there were some that thought that Wells is overall genius impacted of the film, but the film was a little discombobulated and really laid flat. Um, so I kind of went down the middle of the road. So I went with a 2.5 overall simply because there seemed to be even the people that were negative still said there were certain aspects of the film that was very well done and was uh, worth seeing. So you have a 2.5 for the industry. That's not what you said. You said overall. No, excuse me, but that's not what I meant. Okay. But 2.5 for the industry, for the public, I looked it up, uh, and I actually did the research to determine what the overall box office was. There were 177 movies released in 1958 that were released by major studios. This was number 29. So it actually drew better numbers than a lot of films, quite a lot of films. But it was still nowhere near the top. I mean, Vertigo was 10 and it was not considered a well-received movie. So I went with a two simply because it was better than a lot of the films that were released that year. But it was nowhere near anything that was uh, significant as far as impact or significance as far as box office. So overall, I'm talking about a 4.5. I'm
0: just weighing my options here. I think... Yes, your research turned up a few factors that I didn't find myself. And that's why I was open to having this be an open discussion as opposed to a firm number. I still think that 1.5 of the industry is probably warranted given that this... I can
1: understand your point.
0: Well, it's not just so much the awards attention because I know you've said the awards attention becomes a big factor sometimes when you do this category, but it really shouldn't because I think after episode five or episode six of this program, so going back almost four years, <laughs> we eliminated the awards or the recognition category. So it shouldn't actually be a factor per se, but it can be a, a sort of signifier of what people thought at the time. My issue would be that even the positive reviews, quote unquote, would be like, well, there are some moments of brilliance, but the film doesn't really hold up completely together and even when charlton heston's kind of like backtracking immediately with like oh this this may not be that good of a film y- you have to wonder a little bit you know, yeah. uh,
1: no, I, I understand. but i think
0: i think i can raise i think I can raise mine up to a two on the audience side of things so i'll go a 3.5 so it'll even out to a four okay on the average between us all right let's go novelty then So I do think that the camera work, as we've mentioned many, many, many times already, is inventive. I think it actually might be more inventive, although it's harder to tell, but more inventive than Citizen Kane at a a point, especially that opening sequence and the Grandy murder. I think those are two of the most novel camera scenes, as far as I can remember, of anything in kind of that era, uh, up until maybe like Psycho, as, as far as camera work. The story was a bit ahead of its time as far as the subject material, but it wasn't completely against type for Wells. I mean, he'd been kind of undermining the system or thumbing his nose at big, important people or institutions for quite a while, and he kind of carried it forward with his next movie again, The Trial, which is kind of following along a similar vein, but in a much more abstract way. But there's still so much missing in this for me with Execution given the multiple cuts and the ways we had to get just to this version of the film and people had to go back and try and recreate it as best as possible. The multiple directors in kind of a phase where they had to shoot extra scenes to kind of insert in here, the multiple editors, the multiple writers, there's like four writers that were on here. I know Wells is the only credited writer, but there were like four people that worked on this. It just feels somewhat disjointed as opposed to something that, feels much more wholly unique of one or maybe two people from start to finish. This feels a bit more like a camel. So while I do think there are some novel bits about this, I don't think it makes up completely for the areas where it falters. For me, I have a 5.5.
1: I'm higher. I figured you would be. The subject matter was completely unique and rather um, challenging for the times. The idea in 1958 that law enforcement may not be honest was a huge issue. And I'm going to add to this one aspect that I had not talked about or had that we've really discussed. Henry Mancini. I mean, by the by the 1960s, Mancini had a run of, you know, we're talking about the Pink Panther, we're talking about... Peter Gunn for television. We're talking about Doctari with the elephant walk. Uh, we're t- I mean, Moon River with uh, breakfast at Tiffany's. This is one of the films where I really think the music really set a tone that really kind of married the shot with the music more. I mean, yeah, we had a lot of music and a lot of music, building towards it but to me this was more of a wedding of the visual with the music itself than any film I could remember up until this point in time and I think it kind of set a a tone that Mancini used throughout the 60s with some of the other work he did where he actually developed and, and prepared music that kind of built upon the visual. So I went with a 7.5 for novelty because the camera work was phenomenal. Um, The music, I thought, really kind of wedded the visual and the music together. And the subject matter was something completely off the norm from where things were in the very traditional Eisenhower 1958
0: year. I thought the music was kind of forgettable in this, and I would highlight at least two other movies we've discussed, although we've only done one episode on one of them. But I think High Noon's a better union of music to actual storyline, and Rear Window has a great score accompanying it that really highlights what's the action going on on screen.
1: I, I can understand your point, but I think there's just something about Mancini in this film I can see the root of how things were done for him and for his great run in the sixties. That was, I thought, unique. That's just where I am. So that's where I'm at
0: 7.5. So that's a 6.5 average between the two of us. Classicness. I'll let you go first.
1: (sighs) Boy, did I have a problem with how Mexicans were portrayed in this film? Boy,
0: there's a lot of stuff in here. So if I'm going to interject, just a few of the things that weighed on me in calculating this. If you just get past Charlton Heston playing a Mexican as the opening, who instead of using, like, Miguel, we all of a sudden have to introduce a Anglo-Saxon Mike into the equation. Mike Vargas. Like, he's uh, some extra from the set of, like, some Venice Beach film. But anyway... Yes. Yes. The way they talk about the Mexican American border, like it's just so wide open compared to the politics of today and the fence or the wall or whatever you want to call it. The overt racism that's said, I mean, it's not quite to the level of being like way out there, but it's pretty damn close. You
1: mean like dinner tables and a lot of American homes around Thanksgiving?
0: Yeah. Well, that's coming up for a lot of people after this episode. I think yeah, we're, this is like a month ours. ahead of time, but, but, how Janet Lee's character is only in this movie to be a worry spot for Charlton Heston. She's carrying the plot line only along for how it affects his character. And at no other point in the film is she her own character. And again, she really needs to stop visiting motels by herself. <laughs> yes. But this is where I would find something like the prescient nature of police corruption to be something that aids it back up just slightly, but it's still got its issues. I think this feels a bit dated in its subject material because of the location and the environment where it takes place and who's in it. This could have just as easily been a film that would have been in, like, Kansas and been just fine. But they put it in the story subject material right on the border, and they made some very conscious choices that I don't think hold up particularly well. So where do you actually come down? I went with a six. Interesting. Okay. I would have thought you would have been a little
1: bit lower. Well, I, I, I could be convinced. I didn't want to be too preachy about it.
0: Oh, no. See, that's where I differ from you entirely. Even with giving a point back up for the prescient nature of the film, I just feel there are some things in this that feel just so much more dated than other films of the era. And take me out of the movie in certain ways, especially given the politics and the racism and the other things that maybe it's not necessarily the movie's fault, but it also isn't in its favor. I still had two and a half points off from my baseline of a seven. So I'm at a four point five.
1: Okay. Well, I'm based on that and what you've commented. I'll go down to a five point
0: five. Did you need help with the math on that? Uh, Are you capable of giving an average? I believe it's five. You are correct, sir. Ah, Rewatchability. I do think this is a film that could actually grow on me, though, with a few more visits. So I'm actually a little curious to maybe go back, particularly the second half of the film, but go back and kind of rewatch it. So this may be one in six months, eight months, ten months, whatever, that I put back on and say, all right, I've had some time to kind of sit away from the film. Let's approach it now where it's the second viewing. And I've said for a while that usually my second viewing is the best version of me going into it. I'm no longer focusing solely on the plot, but all the other peripheral stuff. What does this movie have to show me? So I have it at about a 2.5 just because of my curiosity that's there. Like I'm not itching to go back and put this one right back on, but it's not that far away. As far as leaving it on, though. Also because of that curiosity, but because I know it's a more important film and it's only one that I've now just seen for the first time, I'd give it a three. So I'm at a 5.5. Well, I'm at a six
1: because this is a film that I would love to put on with friends. I, I mean, like the people I go out on Thursday night with, I would love to have them watch the film and just see their reaction Uh, I have a group of friends I go out with on Thursday nights and uh, we kind of drink and talk and, you know, kind of just a men's night. I would love to have them watch this film and just see what they think. And I can see myself doing this on several occasions. So that's why I went with a six, because I kind of actually want to watch the film again at some point, probably six to eight, 12 months and just see how it is. I can see putting this film on over, like, if we have multiple days for a holiday and we have the family all around, just putting on and seeing what everybody else in the family thinks of it. Even Keith? Yes, even Keith, because I would be fascinated to see what way he
0: would go with this. Oh, no, he would take the side of Quinlan. Oh, yeah. Guaranteed. I'm sure he would. Now, whether he's joking or not is another matter entirely. I've never been able to figure it out. Not with 100% certainty at any one point in time. I will say that much. My daughter always says, he's joking, he's joking. Yeah, I think that's it. He's he's always joking. But there's just a few of those where he pushes the envelope a little bit too much. (laughs) Yeah, okay. And you're you're hoping that maybe he's not joking. Yeah. So for audience score, we have an 86 for Google users, a 92 for Rotten Tomato users, giving us an 8.9. So to recap the categories, we have a 5.25 average for legacy, a four for impact and significance, 6.5 for novelty, a five for classicness, a 5.75 for rewatchability, and an eight point nine for audience score, giving us a final total of 35.4, 35.4, and currently placing it on our list between Oceans 12 and Friday. <laughs>
1: okay. Uh, I'm always amazed at
0: where, where, where these come out on the lists. So this is the bottom 10 as it stands right now. The Room is in a category by itself way on the bottom. Then in the second category, I would probably place The Greatest Show on Earth and Victory, Then you kind of get these next category where it's the quiet man and wedding crashers and the help. (laughs) And then we just have movies. We generally like, you know, the movie wasn't necessarily well received or we didn't understand it or it wasn't well executed or whatever else. You kind of have this next bridge of movies, Friday oceans, 12, Steve jobs, a bridge too far stuff that just kind of like, okay, it's there. We talked about it. We didn't think it was all that great. And this will fit in snugly in that category. Yes. All right then. So if you disagree with our scoring or have some comments for us, please write us at greatest all-time movie podcast at gmail.com. You can also find us or contact us via the website Ronnie Duncanstudios.com backslash Gmote Podcast. You can find us also on the socials at Gmote Podcast on X, on Instagram, and on TikTok. Remaining questions. So I already asked one that I think is probably the key remaining question for me with the film. We know that Sanchez is guilty, but what about the others Quinlan framed? I'll leave that one just kind of out there. What exactly was Grandy's plan regarding Vargas? I mean, he says he doesn't want to like physically violate him, but does he like want to extort him? Does he want to kidnap the wife so that he has to like intimidate him? I'm I'm not really sure what he is or what he represents in the movie other than a means by which you can set up Vargas near the end of the film.
1: He's trying to get Vargas to back off and not be so
0: aggressive against the Grande family. That's it because it's out of his hands by that point. I mean, it's in the justice system and he's going to be on trial. It
1: is. And it isn't okay. Because uncle Joe now has control of the family. He doesn't really care if Vargas convicts his brother He doesn't give a shit, quite frankly, because he's in control now. He just wants a situation where Vargas backs off and goes with what he's got
0: and leaves the rest of the family alone. I guess that's one interpretation of it. I I still am just kind of confused at the general like thought of where the plot line is on this.
1: That's where I am with it, based on 35 years of doing
0: legal work. Yes, but how many of those were with the mob? Or cartels?
1: Uh, More
0: than you really want to know? Apparently, because I didn't think there'd be a single one. But, okay, uh, regardless. Why did Charlton Heston have to be a Mexican official for this script to work? It's just where it was set. They didn't really care. It didn't matter. I mean, I know it doesn't bother anybody in 1958 that he would be playing a Mexican, but it just seems kind of... Unnecessary? What was Breakfast with Tiffany's? Or at Tiffany's? At Tiffany's is 1963, I think.
1: Yeah, well, we have Mickey Rooney playing
0: a Japanese man. Is that even really a Japanese man? (laughs) Well, it's supposed to be. Uh, yeah. That's like early World War II Bugs Bunny cartoons (laughs) character.
1: Or, uh... Scenes from Gilligan's Island.
0: Well, see, there you got me on that one because I don't know yeah. exactly what what you're talking about with that. But
1: okay, well, if you're if you're old enough to remember all the episodes of Gilligan's Island after school, you'll remember exactly what I'm talking about.
0: Okay. Finally, what is Tana's relationship to Quinlan? Like, they're supposedly friends. He asks for fortunes. They were lovers. Okay. It was a lover. Cause I I just, it's never really explained in the film, but she's like the last shot of the film. So she has to have some
1: meaning behind it. Yes. Because she deep down still cared about him because it's at some point in time there was, you know, they talk about making chili. Okay. But that was right
0: after she didn't recognize him.
1: He was in love with her. She was in love with him. And But his drinking ultimately resulted in their complete failure as a couple. And there was still
0: this tie that was together. That's what was going on. Then you clearly got much more out of this film than I did because I didn't get any of that. Well, I mean, they open up by saying she does not recognize him. And all of a sudden he's a friend.
1: She doesn't recognize him because he's been eating all the candy bars because he's weighing much more. He looks haggard and horrible. She remembers him when he was a younger man and they were lovers. And I mean, it's
0: okay. Again, I think that's a failure of execution.
1: I I, I, mean, I understand this. You're coming at this as a 33-year-old man. I'm coming at this as a 59-year-old man. I'm telling you that there are points in time where you will run into former people that you were involved with in relationships. And you kind of, you know, things happen. Happen in relationships that you don't anticipate or things fall apart or you... And that's what happened with this. It was a situation where they, their relationship deteriorated, they separated, then they come back later, and his presence, even though she didn't recognize him because he's not anywhere close to what he was when she knew him, she still cares, and he, she's running on the bridge
0: to intervene and try to help him, and it, by then it's too late. So that's going to do it for us this week. Thank you for listening. They're coming. They're coming. Next week for our 186th episode, it's our Halloween episode for the year. And we're returning to Alfred Hitchcock for a discussion on The Birds from 1963. Directed by Alfred Hitchcock, written by Evan Hunter. Cinematography by Robert Burks, starring Rod Taylor, Tippi Hedren, and Jessica Tandy. You won't want to miss that one, so watch ahead of the show by searching the Real Good app to find where it's streaming for you. That's R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D. Please like, follow, rate, and review or whatever on whichever platform you have so that more can join in on our fun. You can also email the show at the new RonnieDuncanStudios.com or email us at GreatestAllTimeMoviePodcast at gmail.com. Find our new Facebook page on our Greatest Movie of All Time podcast or find us on Instagram, X, or TikTok at the handle at Podcast. The Greatest Movie of All Time is a production of Ronnie Duncan Studios. Our show is mixed, edited, and read by Thomas Duncan. Our music is thanks to Purple Planet Music. Our technical provider and distributor is Captivate FM.